Welcome back to the gathering. It's good to be back. If uh, you maybe have joined us for the first time in the last couple weeks, uh, let me introduce to you our summer series. It's called BC. Um, pretty self-explanatory. It's stories of the Old Testament before Christ. And what we're doing is we're doing a deep dive into some stories that you may or may not know to flesh out who is God and how do we see Jesus. And so this is, uh, I think, part four or five of our series. And I've got a I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about tonight. It's one of my favorite, but probably one of the more obscure stories in the Old Testament. But before we get there, I want to share with you a quick story about the first time I ever went to the principal's office. I was in third grade. And now for those of you who don't know, I grew up in Iowa and we have some different trees up there. And the trees in Iowa uh, in the fall they basically dump all over everyone's yard and the streets millions and millions of acorns. And where I went to school, we didn't get a bus if you were more than, if you were less than two miles from school. You walked or rode your bike or got a ride. And so we were about uh, probably three quarters to a mile away from school. And so we would walk every day. My brother and I, we'd get up, we'd walk, we'd you know, meet our friends at the corner, and by the time we got to school, there's like a group of 15 of us. You know, I mean, just what an idea. 15 third graders on their own walking a mile to school. That, that's, that's a terrifying thought these days. But back then, uh, that's what we did. And so we had we'd gone to school. It was a normal day, fall day. I think it was like November-ish. It was a little chilly out. Um, but as a third, year, a third grader, one of the best things about acorns is there the perfect size to fit in your tiny little hand and to throw as hard as you can? Now, I don't, again, I don't know where you grew up, but acorns, um, they're not like these soft little cute nuts that you maybe see in a cartoon with squirrels in it. At the very bottom of an acorn is a very pointy, sharp little end. Uh, imagine going to the doctor and getting your finger pricked. All right, it feels the same way. Like if you push on it real hard, that's what it feels like. And so as we would walk home every day, me and my buddies, our little squad of third graders, maybe we were in fourth grade, I don't know. But we would, we would walk home, we'd go across the crosswalk, we'd behave ourselves until the school could not see us anymore. And then our little adventurous minds would kick into high gear. And we would, we would invent some sort of challenge game, um, adventure that we were on the rest of the way home. And this particular day, uh, we would do our normal cut-throughs, like we cut through somebody's yard so that we, you know, the, the mean lady in the window we thought was watching us and calling the cops and going to come after us that probably never really existed, but we believed every house there was some evil witch-type woman waiting to catch us as we cut through their yard. And so this particular day, we were sneaking through a yard, and we decided, hey, let's have an acorn fight. Let's do this. And so we split into teams, and we, there's one particular house in the corner that had a lot of big bushes and a lot of big trees, things that you know, a third or fourth grader can hide behind and, and consider a bunker of sorts. And so we split up our teams, and we started going at it. I mean, because there's millions of acorns. I mean, you, know, you just put them in your shirt like this, and you're, you know, think about elf. It's like, you know, whatever. And they're just flying, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere... We see these two girls from our school come around the corner. And of course, as perfect gentlemen, we were like, new target, new game, here we go. Okay, 
So now, full disclosure, a couple of, of us, I won't say exactly who or their names in case they watch this someday, had crushes on these two little girls walking around the corner. But we decided, hey, why are we throwing uh, acorns at us when we could clearly, and it would be much more fun to throw acorns at them. And so that's what we did. We hid in the trees and the bushes. And as soon as they walked in front of the house we were at, we just started unloading every acorn we could onto these poor two sweet little girls. And we got the reaction we were looking for. It was fantastic. They screamed. They ran as fast as they could. And there may or may not have been a few tears along the way. Because it would be like being thrown at little darts with sharp little pointy things at the end. And if you're a third or fourth grade little girl, that's not going to go over well. And so we had a great time. We were just sharing our victory stories with each other. Like, did you see this? You know, whatever. And I mean, I remember this clear as day. This was a great day. Uh, I get home and my mother is waiting for me. I'm like, that's kind of weird. I'm, I, was th- okay, I was in third or fourth grade. Give me a break. So I walk in and she's like, how was the walk home from school, Andy? I was like, it was great. It was awesome. We had a great time. And she's like, well, I got a phone call. And turns out this, these two little girls ran home and they told mom. And mom called my mom. And my mom was furious that her sweet little boys and the neighbor boys would do this to these two little girls. So she put me in the car and my brother, because he was in our squad, and she drove us to their house. The whole time, I am like, Mom, I will do anything not to have to do what you're about to ask us to do. And she's like, nope, sorry, this is what's happening. So we pull up to their driveway. We walk up to the front door. My mom is standing behind us. The two Rosh Call boys are in front of her. We ring the doorbell, and we have to apologize face-to-face. Most humiliating thing of my life. My greatest day turned into my worst day. And I thought, it's over. It's over. Whew. Conscience is clear. We're good. We apologize. It was terrible, but we're past it. Until school the next day. I'm sitting in my very first class, and over the intercom, you hear, would you please send Andy Roshkalb to the office, please? I was like, and it is that moment where the whole class knows what's happening. And the whole class is like, oh. <laughs> and my whole insides went, oh. <laughs> I did, I mean, it was not good. I knew. I knew what that meant. Because as a little third or fourth grade boy, I knew what going to the office meant. Because that's where the bad kids went. That's where the troublemakers went. And all of a sudden, the fear and the shame that, had, that I had kind of pushed past the, the night before came rushing back with a flood. And I walked out of the classroom and I started walking down to the principal's office very, very slowly. There was a lot of drinking fountains in my elementary school. And I think I stopped at every single one. And I stopped at every single bathroom. And I stopped at every single felt bored and looked at the artwork because I didn't want to go. The last thing I wanted to do was go see the principal because I knew, at least I thought I knew, that my high school principal hated children. That's what I believed because all I ever saw was the bad kids go there 
And I knew that now maybe I was the bad kid. Maybe I was the troublemaker. Forget about what was about to happen. I just didn't like this new identity that my whole school knew. Andy, go to the principal's office. And I had assumed things about my principal. I had assumed things about what was going to happen. I had assumed things about not, now I have this new identity. Right? And my, world, my little third grade world was coming to a crashing end. And I tell that story only because of this. I think a lot of times in life, we never leave that feeling. That when something happens or doesn't happen, or we experience something, or we think something, or we do something, those feelings of fear and shame and, and assumption come flooding back. And all of a sudden, we have a new identity. Because that's really what shame is. To me, there's two definitions that really work well for shame. Shame is an unwanted identity. And in that moment, the identity that I didn't want was a troublemaker, a bad kid. I didn't want that. All right, and so when, I, when, when that came out, I, all of a sudden I started to feel anxious. I feel scared. I feel nervous. The other definition that I like to use um, for, for shame is I don't feel necessarily bad about what I did. I feel bad for who I am. That my behavior has identified me. That that's who I am. And so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about shame. And we're going to talk about a story in the Bible that's very obscure and it's a story of a man taken from his place of shame, and he is placed in a seat of honor. And the word honor in this context just simply means to give someone else the advantage, to put them in an advantageous position. And so this story we're going to talk about is this guy is in shame, and he's being put on into a seat of honor, of advantage. That's what we're going to look at tonight. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's towards the far left side of your Bible. It's right after 1 Samuel. If you've got to go to the, you go to the table of contents, that's fine. Go there. Let's get there together. And so there's two characters that I really want to key in on in this story. I'm going to kind of give you a paraphrase, the Andy version of the story. And then we're going to, like we've done in the past, we're going to go back and kind of walk through a little bit of the story and pull a couple things out. There's two main characters. There's King David, who you guys know from David and Goliath probably. It's the same guy. But except David is now past David and Goliath. He has been chased by Saul for many, many years. Saul, the previous king, is trying to kill him. And then there's this other guy. And his name is, you guys write this down because this, this name's coming back, all right? His name is Mephibosheth. So write that down. We can call him Mephib. Call him Oshef, whatever. Great nickname possibilities, okay? But his name's Mephibosheth. And he's only mentioned a few times in the Bible in very short bursts. But in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we get the biggest uh, picture of Mephibosheth. So let me take you back. Here's where our story begins. Our story begins back in 1 Samuel. And David, he was not king yet, but his best friend was the king's son. His name was Jonathan. And Jonathan and David were best friends. It, it was a little bit awkward because Jonathan's dad was trying to kill David. And so there was some weird tension there. But those two never lost their camaraderie, never lost their friendship. In fact, one, at one point, 
Jonathan asks David, hey, when we're dead and gone, will you promise me that you will continue to show God's loving kindness to my family? And David says, absolutely, I will. Fast forward a few chapters into 1 Samuel chapter 31, and we see the Philistines, the famous Goliath Philistines. They're fighting the Israelites once again. And, but this time, the Philistines kill Saul, and they kill Jonathan, and they kill several other brothers of Jonathan. And so in one battle, almost the entire family of Saul is wiped off the planet. Which brings an interesting moment, because all of a sudden, now there's a, a transition in regime. You have Saul no longer king, Jonathan, the heir apparent, no longer there, his brother's no longer there, and guess what happens? David, the Lord's anointed, now takes the throne. And over the next several chapters, we read about how David said, all right, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go, and he was already a great warrior at this point, but I'm going to go and I'm going to annihilate all of my enemies, and he does. Tens of thousands. Second Samuel chapter eight lists it out. And it says, hey, David not only defeated his enemies, but he reigned with justice and equity over his people. And then this moment happened where David says, he asks a strange question, especially for the time. Because here's the tradition of the time. The tradition of the time is when the previous king's regime is finished, the new king would come in and massacre his entire family. Brothers, sisters, children, wives, everybody. Meaning, it was David's, it sounds weird now, but his right and the tradition to go in and say, bring me all of Saul's family, kill them all. Because back then, they were worried about coups, about someone coming in and saying, I am the rightful heir to the throne. And so the tradition was to wipe out the whole family. And this is where David changes from tradition, and he moves in a countercultural direction. He says in verse 1 of Second uh, Samuel chapter 9, he says, Is there anyone left in Saul's house whom I can show the kindness of God? Whoa. All of a sudden, David wants to know where Saul's family is. Not to kill them, but to show them kindness. And only one name comes up. There's only one person left. And his name is Mephibosheth. And David inquires, like, where's this guy? And one of Saul's former servants says, well, I know where he lives. He lives in this guy's house named Micah. And David says, go get him. Go bring Mephibosheth to me so that I can show him the kindness of God. And so the guy's name is Ziba, another up-and-coming name. Uh, Ziba goes and says, hey, knocks on Mephibosheth's door. Now, can you imagine what Mephibosheth is thinking at this second? My time has come. Oh no. They have found me. I have been hiding. Because this is years later. He's, he, he's no longer uh, a baby. But here's one strange thing about Mephibosheth that I haven't yet told you. He's crippled in both legs. Can't walk. Can't run. Can't stand. Because what had happened back in first, or Second Samuel 4 is when his maid, when he was five years old, his nanny, his maid, when she heard that Saul and Jonathan had been slaughtered, she picked up this little five-year-old Mephibosheth and said, we gotta go. Because she knew what was coming, the wrath and the fury and the massacre of the new, new king. And so she took Mephibosheth and she ran as fast as she could. And along the way, she dropped him. 
and he became lame in both legs. Quite a fall, evidently. And so the soldiers are at Mephibosheth's door, saying, hey, it's time for you to come see King David. And so they carry him back to the palace. Had to have been a long journey from Mephibosheth, thinking these are my last hours on this earth. Because tradition, my assumptions are that David's going to kill me. Like, this is what they do. This is what happens. And then he gets to the palace, and he falls before King David, and he calls himself, I'm, a, I'm, your, I'm your servant. What do you want? I'll do anything for you. And David does another crazy thing. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, because he could see it. All over Mephibosheth, the terror that he had, that he was about to die. So David says, do not be afraid. I am about to show you kindness. And I'm going to restore to you all the things that your grandfather Saul owned. Everything that was rightfully yours, I'm going to give to you. And you will eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth in in verse 8 says, how can you speak and care for a dog like me? And David turns to Ziba, the guy that went and got him. He said, Ziba, you and your entire family and all of your servants are now servants of Mephibosheth. You will go out and you will work the fields and you will bring in the crop so that Mephibosheth can eat because he couldn't do it. You see, Mephibosheth's shame, his unwanted identity was his family name. He did not want to be known as Saul and Jonathan's boy because that meant certain death. And he also, his second shame was his crippledness. He offered nothing to anyone. Like this is an agricultural time. This is not today. Like your whole value and worth in society is what you could produce and bring in to help the family live another week. And Mephibosheth could not even do that. And so Mephibosheth comes into the house of David and David shows him the kindness of God. I want to walk back through this, but I want to key in on one particular verse. Verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, turn to verse 7 of 2 Samuel 9. It's one little phrase that King David says. This is how he addresses. He says, And David said to Mephibosheth, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. I'm going to break this up into three sections tonight. The first phrase is, do not fear, I will show you kindness. You see, I think we, and this is my first point, that shame assumes hostility, but honor offers kindness. Shame assumes hostility. Like, you and I know this, okay? We, we are familiar with this. We, it is very easy for me especially when those unwanted identities, those insecurities, and those fears are brought up in me, it is super easy to believe that they hate me, that they are against me, they're not for me, and they are gonna do whatever it takes to screw me over. Because shame assumes hostility, but honor offers kindness, and that's exactly what he did. You see, Mephibosheth assumed David wanted to kill him. He had heard the rumors. He had heard the traditions. And his shame of his name and his shame of his crippledness 
he assumed David is out to get me. He's out to get me. Our assumptions often are often, uh, well, let me, let me skip that. Let me just say this. We, we do this with God sometimes, right? It's kind of like our texting relationship with our friends, right? We, we shoot a text. It's like, you know, three or four sentences long, and then it ends with a question, and you get one response. Fine. Okay. Ugh. Right, you might as well use the other four-letter F word because that's how I feel right now. Like, you, what does that mean? You're, you're mad at me? What, what's going on? Like, are, do we have a problem, right? Like, because all of a sudden we have, we're insecure that maybe someone, that I'm unlikable. And my shame and my fears and my insecurities allow me to assume that my friend is hostile to me through that text. And we do this to God all the time. We say a prayer. We say, God, I, I need help. I need this. I would desire this. And we have a conversation with God, and we're, and, and we're received with a no or a wait. Or even worse, we feel like we're ghosted by God. We hear nothing. Because of our insecurities and our fear and our shame, it's easy to assume hostility. God doesn't love you. God's not for you. God's not listening to you. But no, 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 that's not the picture we get from the story of David and Mephibosheth. What we get is similar to what Paul says in Romans 2.4. It says, or you, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness has a purpose? It's intended to lead you to Repentance. You see, God's motivation, whether he's telling you to wait, whether he's telling you no, or whether he's just being silent, his motivation towards you, according to Scripture, specifically Romans 2.4, is kindness. God views you. The direction that he is moving towards you is the direction of kindness. It's when we're going the other direction that we meet the kindness of God, and sometimes it doesn't feel so kind because we're going in the wrong direction. But gathering, you need to hear tonight from this story that God sees you and views you and is coming at you with a kind motivation, regardless of what's actually happening, because God's, his kindness in your life is for a purpose. It's repentance, to turn and to walk with him. The next phrase that we have in this little verse of verse seven is, I will restore to you all the land of Saul. I will restore to you all the land of Saul. That brings me to my second point, and that is that shame assumes deprivation. Honor offers restoration. Shame assumes deprivation. Honor offers restoration. You see, in verse eight, we, we see uh, Mephibosheth and I already said it once, but we, we see him throw out his shame. Like he says it, right? In verse eight, he says, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That's how he views himself. I'm a dead dog. Like I'm not even useful to snuggle and play catch with. I'm a dead dog. Why would you give regard to me? Like all of a sudden we're starting to feel Mephibosheth's insecurity and shame well up because he views himself lowest as the low because of his name and his crippledness. 
because shame assumes things. And whether we like to believe it or not, we listen to our shame all the time. We listen to it. We give credence to it. We believe it. And right in this verse, verse 8, Mephibosheth is having a moment of crisis. Because what he has assumed and believed about himself, his unwanted identity as worthless, having no value, crippled, is being challenged by the king of Israel. And what I love is that David completely ignores his comment. Completely ignores it. All he does is he simply turns and he says, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. Doesn't even listen to the shame. Because that's not how God, uh, well, God, yes, but in this story, David views Mephibosheth, and that's how God views you. Because whether you like to believe it or not, we have nothing to offer God. We're crippled. We're born, in a sense, crippled by our sin and our sin nature. And it's not, there's nothing I can do. There's no good works I can do. There's no church attendance that I can gain that says, hey, God, I've brought something to you. In this case, we're Mephibosheth, where we have nothing. And all we do is come and enjoy the kindness of the king. And he restores to Mephibosheth everything that he never thought would actually happen. He was living in hiding. No one knew where he was. But he was the son of the former king. And he didn't even own his own house. And here he is in front of the king, and he says, have it all. Everything that your family had is now yours again. You see, shame assumes that we'll be deprived of things. But when God, through Jesus Christ, honors us and gives us the advantage, we are restored. In Romans 8, 17, we talked about it earlier in February. It says, and if children of God, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. And then Jesus himself said in John 10, he said, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. David tells Mephibosheth, I'm gonna give it all to you. You don't deserve it but I'm gonna give it all to you. You offer nothing, but I'm gonna give it all to you. And he restores him to a position of honor, landowner, small business owner. He says, I can give it all. The next phrase that we see following the restoration, he says, you shall eat at my table always. Like this story, man, Mephibosheth's having the greatest day of his life. I mean, grace upon grace upon grace. Undeserved favor on top of undeserved favor, and now here we are. David says, you shall eat at my table always. And that's my third point. Shame assumes isolation, but honor offers adoption. Shame assumes isolation, but honor offers adoption. You know the funny thing about isolation and shame? Is this a really 
symbiotic relationship. Because when we isolate ourselves because of our shame, right, we, don't, we feel unlovable, we don't feel likable, we don't feel worthy, we don't feel valuable, we, we, we're not as successful, whatever it is, whatever unwanted identity, when you get isolated, that shame will just, it's the only thing you hear. You're not good enough, not pretty enough, not successful enough, you don't make enough money. Like it's just constant, constant rotation of shame. And King David like just lays the trump card down. He says, not only am I gonna show you the kindness of God, not only am I gonna give you your inheritance back, I'm going to invite you to live in my palace and you will eat at my table always. And it says later here in verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Ephesians 2.13, Paul echoes this phrase, this idea. In Ephesians 2.13, it says, But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, Mephibosheth was not invited by David to be a guest because that would be temporary. A couple meals, we'll send you back. He wasn't invited as a guest. He wasn't invited to come and serve. Although permanent, it's a position without honor. What David did for Mephibosheth was he invited him as a son, which is both permanent and with honor. And that is what God, through Christ, has done for you and what he's done for me. He has not invited you in as a guest. He has not gone for those who are far away just to bring them in temporarily. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now Christ Jesus, who once, who you once who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 8.14, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, servants, so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption as sons and daughters. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, the gospel isn't just for the forgiveness of your sins. It is for your adoption into God's family. Mephibosheth woke up alone in a shack with nothing. And he went to bed that night with a full inheritance and a permanent place at the king's table. That is the transformation of the kindness and goodness of God. He took all of Mephibosheth's shame and he said, it is no longer welcome here. Yes, you may be lame, but remember where you are. Remember who you are. In the end, this is a story, and all the stories that we've covered are just a foreshadowing of Jesus. In this story, David represents the character and the heart of God. But Jesus one day would be the proof of the character and the heart of God. 
You see, God honors us despite our sin. He honors us, meaning giving us the advantage, despite our shame, by showing us his kindness, offering us restoration and adoption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're new here tonight and you're like, why are these people singing? Some dude that lived 2,000 years ago. Here's why. Because we're Mephibosheth. We're Mephibosheth. We're orphaned. We're crippled by our own sin. We're crippled by other people's sin that has affected us, that has heaped upon shame upon shame of who we are. And Jesus says, I will come and I will bring those who are far away and I will bring them near. In fact, I will bring them near and I will restore them and I will share not just someone else's inheritance. Jesus says, you will have my inheritance. You'll be co-heirs with me. How about that deal? He doesn't say, hey, Andy, gathering, you guys can have Moses and Abraham's share. No. He says, you get to have my share because now you are a son and daughter of Christ or God in Christ. That is wonderful, wonderful news. And I love this tiny little story. And I love that God decided to put it in Scripture. Because it could have just been another day where David paid it forward and said, hey, I'm going to do nice for something. I just killed tens of thousands of people. Who can I bless? He doesn't do that. He puts in this picture of the goodness of God to those who are crippled, who are shamed, and who by all of society's measures are worthless. And he says, come, come to my home and I will show you my goodness. I will restore to you all that I have and you will have a permanent place at my table. Shame assumes hostility, but honor offers kindness. Shame assumes deprivation and honor offers restoration and then shame assumes isolation that we'll be alone forever but honor offers adoption. So what do we do with this? I wanna give you two challenges. Number one, be like Mephibosheth. Number one, be like Mephibosheth. Receive humbly the invitation of Christ to come near. Humbly receive the invitation to come near to God. He sent his son to draw you in. Be like Mephibosheth and live with the king. Stop going back to hiding. Stop going back to the shame. Stop going back to what's comfortable and familiar, but it makes you feel isolated and deprived and all the things. Come to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who invites you in and says, I, you want real rest? You come to me. You want restoration? Come to me. You want to be part of a new family with a new identity and a new purpose? Come to me. Then secondly, be like David. Look for those who are far off with the intent to show them the kindness of God. Look for those who are far off, the weak, the wounded, those who are in hiding, and dare I say, your enemies. Look to show them the kindness of God. Because let's not make a mistake, Mephibosheth in that day and in that culture would have been seen as the enemy of David because he was from the previous regime's family. Are you known by kindness? 
Is there anybody in your life that you look at and say, but I don't want to show them kindness. They're mean to me. They're my enemy. Well, then you are in good company because our sin has made us hostile enemies to God. And he said, you know what? I'm going to be kind to you nonetheless. I'm going to send my son for you. I'm going to let him die for you. I'm going to, he's going to take your sin and your shame. He's going to nail it to a cross because I love you and I want you to know the kindness of God. Christian, are we known by our kindness? And then secondly, be like David by not relenting in your kindness. Don't quit. Don't do it one time and check it off. Be like, okay, I did what Andy asked me to do. I was kind one time, fantastic. Don't relent in being kind. David said, you will eat at my table always. Always. Your place is here. You belong next to me. So I want to challenge you. When you look at your life, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, whatever it is, who is it that needs to know the kindness of God through you? Because the only one in this story who gave up anything was David. Mephibosheth just received. And what a wonderful picture of the gospel. Jesus gave his life. And all we do is receive the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. You know, the first time that I was called to the principal's office, I was scared because I didn't know him. I had nothing but unfounded fears and assumptions. I just saw him from afar, walking around with his clipboard and his whistle, just lining up the bad kids. Come on in. And when I heard my name over the intercom, my fear and my shame came rushing over me, and I wanted to hide. But little did I know that my principal actually liked kids. Think about that, an educator liking children. As a fourth grader, that never even crossed my mind. And I met with him, and he talked with me, and I realized that he was a kind man, that he actually cared for me. And he said, Andy, I know this is not who you are. And I was like, oh. he just took my shame. And he said, not today. And we had a good conversation, as you can with a third or fourth grader. But he didn't offer me the keys to the school, because that would be foolish, right? He didn't say, hey, you're going to sit with me at lunch for the rest of the school year, because that would have been punishment. But what he did was he allowed me to see who he was and who I am. And from that day forward, man, we gave high fives every day in the hall. And he totally changed my view of who he was. And the story of Mephibosheth, I believe, changes our view of who God is. He is a God who desires to show you kindness. He's not looking to rip you off. He's looking to set you free. He's not looking to rip you off. He's not withholding goodness from you. He's inviting you in. So my question is, why do we live in our crippledness and our sin? Any, why would we live in it any longer? When in Christ, we are offered a new life, a new identity, and a new seat at the table. A seat of honor instead of a seat of shame.
So maybe we can let go of some shame today. I'm just going to finish by reading Isaiah 61, and then we're going to go into our 120 seconds. And if you're new, at the end of each talk, we just do 120 seconds of some music, and we leave the so what on the screen. And we just let you say, hey, pray. You meet with the Lord right now and ask him, maybe who do I meet and show the kindness of God to? How do I need to, to accept the invitation of Jesus to come and sit at his table? But I just want to read Isaiah 61, 1 and 3 to you. It's a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. These are the words of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now catch this. I came to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of, spirit, of a spirit of despair. That's the gospel. It's not mourning. It's joy. It's praise. Because here's the real deal with Mephibosheth. He ate with David every day. And so every day he was reminded of his crippledness because he had to be carried to the table of the king. He could not walk. And I don't know about you and me, but I'm reminded every day of my crippledness. I know my sin. I know what gets me. And I'm reminded every day of my crippledness. But unless we get into this thing every day, we will forget what table we sit at. That you are a child of God. When you surrender and give your life to Jesus, you are sitting at the table of a king regardless of of your state. So Jay's gonna come and sing a quick song that comes from Isaiah 61 called Beauty for Ashes. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of David and Mephibosheth, a God that reminds us that you take our crippledness and you turn it into beauty and that we are invited to sit at your table, a place of honor, when we deserve nothing of it. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you you take our mourning and our despair and you give us a crown of beauty to replace our mourning.